Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. All right, my friends, how many of you have seen that very popular movie, Chariots of Fire? Well, my guest today is the founder of the massive, massive brand, Reebok. Now, the Foster family have been hand-making running shoes since the 19th century, supplying the likes of Eric Little and Harold Abrahams, later immortalized in that film that I just mentioned, Chariots of Fire as well as providing boots to most football league clubs, uh, but a feud between Joe Foster's family and his uncle about the direction of J.W. Foster and Sons prompted Joe, which is my guest today, and his brother Jeff to leave the family business and set up a new company inspired by the success of brands such as Adidas and Reebok was born and Joe's ambitions were sky high. At first, money was so tight that Joe, Jeff, and their wives all lived in their rundown factory with the heavy shoemaking machinery uh, strategically placed to avoid the floor collapsing. As the business grew in fits and starts, Joe's vision for the brand became ever clearer and the setbacks near bankruptcies and tough lessons only served to push Joe and Reebok harder towards the ultimate go goal, breaking America. While Reebok continued to be known for its excellent running shoes, its big break came thanks to the aerobics craze in the 1980s. Soon, Reeboks were on Hollywood's red carpets on the feet of rock stars and even played a starring role in Aliens when Sigourney Weaver took down extraterrestrials in a pair of Reebok alien stompers. Get that. My friends, today's episode was actually recorded a little while ago. I wanted to wait and release this episode because Joe uh, has actually released the paperback version of his book, Shoemaker. Highly encourage you to go and get a copy of that. It's a fascinating read. I loved diving into the entire story of how this big brand became well, the big brand that it is today and, and that we recognize and most of us 
uh, wear. Uh, I personally love the brand Reebok. I have a ton of Reebok shoes myself, especially the CrossFit style. I love the fit. My mum wears them too. Pretty much a lot of people in my family, we all wear uh, Reebok shoes. So this is a, a fascinating conversation, deep dive, look at how the company Reebok got started, Joe's particular story, why he decided to write this book now. Uh, so I know you guys are going to love Joe, his story. Uh, he's, he's a great human being. Really, really do appreciate Joe's patience on this one. Uh, but thank you so much, Joe, for everything that you're doing out there in the world, all the positivity. And without you and your vision and not giving up, Reebok wouldn't be what it is today. So my friends, if you do get something from this one, share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one. Hey, Jay Fanton from the Storybox interviewed the person that started Reebok, which is crazy. Uh, so that would be a huge help. If you, if you would like to get Joe's new book, all links are in the show notes below for that. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, so go and help support Joe, spread his message. It's a great message to actually be spreading. Uh, also, my friends, you can watch the full video now over on YouTube. Links all in the show notes below. Uh, don't forget before you go to subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review over on our podcast. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey into the story box today and listen to the story of the man who created the big brand Reebok, Joe Foster. Well, Jay, hello. That's uh, quite an introduction, that. <laughs> nice to speak to you. And, and so it is. Very nice, yes. Uh, hopefully I didn't butcher it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I appreciate your time, sir, and, and um, been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I appreciate you rescheduling and um, glad we can make it happen. Uh, before, we, before we dive into your backstory and how you got started doing all this and why you do what you do, I have one question that I normally love asking people and I'm very curious about your answer, but what do you think or what does success look like to you? Success is something that uh, it, it's difficult to, uh, to, to pinpoint because you take these, this journey step by step mm. and step by step you get something better, something more successful, but it, is, it, it takes time. Yeah, it's like maybe if you're an athlete and you come out of nowhere and win a gold medal, that, that may be astonishingly quick. But for me, it took 30 years. So 30 years of success is, let me say also, I've been retired 30 years. So surprisingly enough, possibly writing this book <laughs> uh, makes me realize, hmm, that trip was successful. Mm. So I look back on that now and I think, and sometimes I think, how did you do it? You know, it's, it, I, we were young when we started, and at 23, you, you're sort of uh, totally undefeatable. You, know, you, you, you go out into life and you've no fears, no worries. So what does success look like? Well, it's very nice to look back, although there are many things, there are many tragedies and sorrows through it. So that does temporary. It? Um, but it, it's something, as I say, when, you, when you're doing things, it's hard to believe. I guess when we became number one, you feel that you've made it. You know, this is something beyond our dreams. What would you say has been, or can you share some of the stories, <clears throat> challenges that you faced when you first started out or along the journey? 
Well, the journey is a long one. It really is. And uh, um, if you want to start the journey, you've got to start with my grandfather back in 1895 mm. when he made himself a pair of running shoes with spikes in. And in 1895, nobody had spikes. So how much of a pioneer he was is hard to say, but he certainly was a pioneer. That started his business. And by 1904, well, by 1900, he actually had his business, J.W. Foster's. Um, in the, uh, well, the 20s, the, the 1920s, that was his belly epoch. That's where he had all the success. You were mentioning Eric Liddell, Harold Abrams, and Lord Burley, and the Chariots of Fire. He had so many gold medals in those days. He was supplying Olympic teams. In 1920, he supplied all the Olympic teams at the Antwerp Games. So uh, <clears throat> we go on from the, <clears throat> unfortunately he died when he, when he was young. He died in 1933, I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday in 1935, which is why I'm, <laughs> I took his name. So uh, he was Joel Foster, I'm Joel Foster. We're all JWs actually, it runs through the family. So we're, Joseph William is, is the name. Um, and I joined the company, the uh, J.W. Foster company in, 1953, not, sorry, 1952, because in 1953, both Jeff, my brother, and myself, we had to do national service in those days. So mm -hmm. we were away doing national service for two years. 1955, we come back. Now, this is where my story really starts, I suppose. We come back from doing national service, <clears throat> and uh, we come back to a company that's failing. My uncle and father were running the company then, granddad would say he died. They were running the company and it was failing. They were still making shoes that they made in the 30s and 40s. Uh, <clears throat> Jeff had been in Germany and in Germany, of course, Adidas, Puma. He could see what they were doing. He could see colorful shoes. He could see developments of product. And Foster's were still making the same shoes. Mm. Uh, it took us three years of trying to persuade father and uncle, come on, we've got to move this company on. We have to start a plan and we have to develop. But they were feuding. They they just they would prefer to have a fight rather than get together and talk. So uh, by 1958, we'd had enough, and we said, "No, we're going." So we left the company. We left the company. We set up our own company, which was then Mercury Sports Footwear, in the next town. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack there, or a lot to unbox, I should say. Um, one of one of the re one of the questions that I, I do have for you is why was your father's company or why was that company really failing? Well, it was failing because uh, when I think grandfather he obviously had a vision, but mm -hmm. he didn't pass his vision on to his sons. So when, when his sons uh, came to run the company, they were happy just to continue the company going, mm -hmm. um, and. They didn't have a vision. They didn't, it's like when you get to the top of the mountain, where do you go next? They didn't know where the next mountain was. You know, they, they didn't know that. They, they hadn't had that sort of education. <clears throat> there was no such thing as business education in those days. You, you either had it in you or you didn't. And uh, obviously they didn't. And there was about five years between them. And during that five years, they'd obviously well, that, that, that gap, they were not friends. They were brothers, but not friends. They worked together, but they didn't work together. They didn't work as a team. <clears throat> and because they didn't work as a team, 
And because the business that my grandfather had gone was so good, it just kept them going. It kept their business going. But they couldn't see when it was dying. They couldn't see it. <clears throat> and, and that's what, that was the problem. Uh, Jeff and myself, possibly we wouldn't have seen it had we not had to do national service. <clears throat> but national service took us away from the family. Mother's not making you dinner anymore. And, uh, things like that. You, the family's not got its arm around you. You've got to look after yourself. So you probably sit up, take a look around and think, oh, this is a big wide world. What's it about? Mm. And it was about more than, uh, than J. Edward Foster's. So mm. <clears throat> when, when, say, we, couldn't, we couldn't get them to, uh, to talk and to reason. They were just, uh, in fact, my father said, look, <clears throat> your, your uncle's not going to live long. And when, when I go, this company will be yours. And of course, they, all I could say was, well, well, Dad, that may be fine, but what? We don't want you to die. That's not, uh, that's not the purpose. But this company will be dead long before you are. Mm. And, uh, but he wouldn't take that on. Uh, and so, as I say, our, our only answer to this was to leave the J.D. Foster company. Mm. I, uh, there's an old saying where there is no vision, the people perish. And I think your grandfather, um, it's a bit of a shame that he ended up passing on and, and not actually passing on that vision. But I guess if he did, do you think that Reebok would be where it is today? Well, I, I think he did pass his vision on, but it did not to his sons. I think we look back and we, we, we saw what uh, grandfather had done. And so I, I guess it was in our DNA. I guess we had something there that said, <clears throat> grandfather did this. He had, a, he had that vision. He had a mission. Um, unfortunately, his sons didn't, uh, which means, and I, I think, therefore, Jedward Foster's really, really lost out at that point. We were supplying every football club you can mention in the UK, and it was 96 teams, with training shoes and boots. Now, by the time Jeff and I came to the, uh, to the business, Adidas had taken that role. Adidas was supplying everybody. Adidas was in every shop. So to say, <clears throat> we needed to change. We couldn't change mm. because it just wouldn't move. And the only way we could do was to leave and set up our own company. When you did leave and went to start up your own company, did you have any fears at all? <clears throat> well, <laughs> I mean, the funny thing about that is now I'd be scared to death of doing it now. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I look back and I think, oh, Joe, how, how did you do that? Why did you no money? We, we really saw little money. I mean, it was hand to mouth. Uh, all our machinery was secondhand. Um, however, what we did do in those three years between leaving the National Service and starting up our own company, we, we went to college to learn. And this was in the evenings. We went to the evenings to college to learn about shoemaking and learn about uh, materials, machinery. And, that, and so that gave us a skill that combined with what we knew about the uh, sports business, because whilst we're making shoes, we're in the shoe industry, but our, we were selling our product to the sports industry, which was quite a lot different. Uh, so we, we learned a lot. And we also had a lot of friends. So we, a lot of people said, what, you set up your own company? And so they would help us. They'd help us with pattern making, help us with last making, all the skills 
that we, we needed, we learned in that three years. So mm-hmm. that when we, when we moved, yeah, we were pretty well prepared, but, you know, we were 20, I'm, I was 23, Jack was 25, and we were just indestructible. Well, we can do it. You kind of have that mindset as a young person, don't you? I'm 24 at the moment. I feel unstoppable. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. It's like Casey. He's unstoppable as well. (laughs) I know. He just keeps going. It it always amazes me, like the kind of people that he gets on his show. Um, But I always, I have this saying that I live by. It's my philosophy, Joe, which is be persistent to remain consistent at the things that you want. And... (laughs) For me to, in order to get anywhere in any capacity in my life, my version ultimately of success is really being persistent because without persistence, I wouldn't be able to get anywhere. Like I'd quit before I'm able to reach the diamond, so to speak. So it sounds like to me, you guys, you had that persistence, even though you might not have realized it then, you just had that drive, that, that energy of we are building something truly unique and special. We want to make it happen. Yeah. I think it's I think it's probably the first building block of an entrepreneur. Yes. Persistent. Yeah, you might not be brilliant, you might not have all the answers, but you're gonna stay there and keep doing it. Mm. Because you will learn and you will get there. Mm. And but you have to be persistent. And absolutely it's uh, it has to be. And you have to be in love with what you're doing as well. You know, oh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change what I'm doing now for anything, Joe. Honestly, like it, it's an amazing thing, amazing experience. I get to connect with you all the way over in France right now. It's uh-huh. a really amazing yeah. thing. I get to hear your story, um, and I'm a huge fan of Reebok. I'm wearing Reebok shorts yeah. now. I've got Reebok shoes. I've got Reebok pretty much everything except for this. Do you even? But <laughs> um, <laughs> I probably should have worn my Reebok, Reebok shirt too. So, but Joe, I'm, I'm curious. I read in somewhere online that you guys were living in a factory. Is that correct? And what happened then? When we, when we left um, the, uh, the business, of course, I sold the property I had. Uh, and that probably gave us some money. I sold my house. And the, uh, the, the building we, uh, we rented was an old brewery. It was a Berry Brewing Company. And the old brewery has three floors, and they also had living accommodation at the front. It was a living accommodation. So, and the living accommodation wasn't too bad. You know, it wasn't, uh, wasn't terrible. It wasn't the best. But then again, you don't see it. You know, you, you, you're going there to do the work. Possibly my wife saw it. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't see it. I, I'm just living here. I've got a job to do. And you see, you're getting on. The job is focus. Uh, but yes, we, we, we lived on the building, and uh, I'm J.W. Foster. I married a Jean, to J. Foster. My brother was Jeffrey William Foster, or J.W. Foster, and he married a Jean Foster. So can you imagine the postman? <laughs> <laughs> so whose letters who? <laughs> yes, I, and, and the tax man. You know, it was good because the tax man didn't know who was talking to him. <laughs> Oh, that would have been fun. <laughs> oh, 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 it was great fun. I think at the time, though, um, our wives in particular found it a bit of a problem because, oh, and so that's why our children were never JWs. <laughs> it was, uh, no, no, we're not having any more JWs. But when you, when you look back on that, that's part of the tradition, part of that, uh, uh, that magic that sort of makes things a little different. Mm. 
Absolutely. Um, I have uh, one of my final questions later on is, is towards legacy. So I'm curious to know your answer to that, but I'm even more curious about, you mentioned your wife there, you were married when you started this. How did you go about meeting your wife and what was your wife's reaction to, we're going to start this business and we're going to live in a factory. You sold your house to live in a factory to get this done. Well, she was very supportive at the time. And I think she was pretty much tired of me coming home at night, working at JW Foster's and just complaining, moaning, we can't do this. You know, we've got to do change. We need to. I think she was probably uh, more persuaded that uh, I should leave and we should do it because at least I'll stop moaning and stop complaining. You know, we, uh, so yes, she was. And again, you know, she was one year younger than me. So again, you at 22, 22, um, you're indestructible. And inevitably, your life is still in front of you, so you, you make it. You make all it what you, you can. And uh, I guess she probably preferred me being happy and not having any money than just earning a small wage and being, well, I won't say being miserable because that wasn't the answer. No, it was just sort of the, there was something inside that said, we've got to change. Mm. And how did you meet her? Like, what was the story for that? Well, uh, back in those days, uh, we're talking about back in the um, late 40s, early 50s, um, everybody went to the local dance hall. Mm. So, I mean, that was it. I played badminton, which was fine. That was my sport. But uh, at weekends, everybody went either to the local church used to have uh, dances. And then, of course, we, we, we grew up and went to the one in, in town, to, to the bigger dances, and, and that's where we met. Mm. What's been the biggest lesson that she's taught you over the years that you hold dear to your heart? Oh, now that's an odd question. <laughs> I, guess, I, I don't know whether, whether she taught me anything or not. It's the uh, biggest lesson that she would have taught me. I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I guess my focus was uh, more on the business. Um, whether, I mean, there's probably something in there, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I don't think that's in the book. Look, if that comes to me when, uh, whilst we're talking, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Um, I'm curious about one thing that you could have put in the book, but you didn't put in the book that you could share here. If it could have gone in the book, it would have been writable. And, uh, there's a lot of things in life which you can't write about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are many anecdotes as well, which the... Uh, while the publishers, you know, when you write the book, and, and it took me seven years to write the book, and <clears throat> there's nothing new in the book from that seven years. There are a few things not in the book from that seven years, purely and simply because when, I mean, I'm a shoemaker or an entrepreneur or whatever you want to be, a marketing man. When it comes to writing a book, uh, you, you have to have certain things in and certain things not in because uh, they were they get concerned that it becomes boring because I'm, I have too many anecdotes of this happening and that happening. No, 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 no. Tell the story. <laughs> so and there, there are lots of things that uh, don't go in the book, purely and simply, because uh, they consider them more anecdotal. 
Uh, and one thing, and I don't think it is in the book because uh, I was due to go to America <clears throat> uh, to the NSGA show. Fortunately, the NSGA show used to be, it used to be three years in Chicago in February. Chicago in February. I mean, I don't know. You've obviously not been there because you've never done a play. But Chicago in February is minus 20 degrees. It is cold, cold, cold. And, but on this year, every fourth year, they used to go down to Houston, which is about Houston in Texas. Well, totally different, hot, wonderful weather. But on this occasion... I was due to go on a week before I was due to go on playing Babington and uh, I, I break my Achilles tendon. My Achilles tendon just went. I'm in hospital. <laughs> uh, and I'm saying to the guy, look, um, I'm, uh, I'm due in America in seven days time. And you know, I, what can I do about this? And so I saying, oh, well, that, that evening I had the operation where they saw it all together because if, if you don't repair your Achilles tendon, you end up with a limp for the rest of your life. So I had the operation, I get the plaster on, <clears throat> and I've got, I think, about four days to go to uh, going, taking the plane to Houston. And uh, the guy said, well, if you can manage with crutches, that'll be fine. <laughs> so I managed with crutches. But I had an athlete friend, because they had crutches then that went under your armpits, you know. And I had a friend who got these elbow crutches. So we swapped the crutches as I, as I was getting on the plane. And uh, I was, I, the plane was going from Manchester to London and then London on to Houston. And, of course, this is a national sporting goods. So everybody in the UK who were to do with the sporting trade, they were all on the plane. And a lot of them were friends. And so they were all saying, what are you doing, Joe? What are you? And well, you know, I played play Bambi. Or I was like, what did it, what's the other guy like? You know, so th this was great. They gave me three seats to myself. So I had a row to myself. And, uh, and when we got on the plane from, uh, from London to, uh, to Houston, a friend of mine came and sat and we had a chat. And uh, I arrived in Houston. They came the... They said, I got the wheelchair, got me off, and they said to my friend, are you with him? And he said, yes, I'm with him. Sorry. So we went past all the, all the people on, in lines as you go through uh, immigration in America, past all that, through, and he said, Joe, he said, we should, uh, we, we should make a plaster cast like this. He said, we could smuggle all sorts of things into the country. <laughs> he just threw me through. <clears throat> But, uh, I mean, those sort of things, like I say, it's anecdotal. Does it do any good for the story? Well, the people said no. <laughs> but, uh, yes. It does, it does make good hearing that. It gave me a bit of a laugh. So <laughs> um, it, I'm, I'm curious about this, this one question I ask people uh, just to see their, their response. But what would you say, Joe, has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received from someone? Oh, there's a lot of that. And uh, I would say probably the worst was the accountants. We're doing very nicely and we have all the shares for the company. And the accountant says the best thing to do is to um, give some of the shares to the family. Then if you should sort of pass away, they don't have to pay tax on it if, it's, if they've had that for seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't good advice. I didn't do it. 
and it would have happened uh, because my daughter, unfortunately, my daughter died um, when she was only 28. And those, you know, if I'd have passed shares on, those would have gone and, and her, uh, her husband remarried and things. So that would have, you know, that sort of advice, <laughs> you, you sit down and you think, well, it sounds good. Mm. Sounds great, but what happens if something happens that shouldn't happen? Like you, your daughter shouldn't die. Mm. Um, so to me, and I think I think the problem with accountants are they they do things by a book, and and that book is uh, is okay for them at that time, but doesn't work for everybody. So it's you know bad advice. Is people, particularly financially, you know people can say things, uh, but. Life changes a lot, so you got to take some take some deep thinking before you do it. I don't I don't mean to be rude or anything, but I do want to ask um, how your daughter ended up passing away. Um, she got leukemia, <laughs> and uh, it was leukemia that uh, that took her. It was uh, she she had a, a very nice time. Uh, we introduced to a lot of people, but uh, no, leukemia, unfortunately. I'm so sorry. I've got a couple of friends of mine that actually have passed away with leukemia. Um, mm. Growing up, a small little boy who was just full of joy, and we used to go and see him all the time. And unfortunately, he ended up passing away. And that was like the first time I ever witnessed death. And as a young boy, like that really changes you a little bit. And I've, I've been it's exposed, yeah. it's very tough. Like I've been exposed to a lot of loss as well in my, my young 24 years in life. But the one thing that I go back to is keep on smiling no matter what. It's, it's okay. And um, well, you, have to, um, you do have to keep on smiling. You have to keep on um, moving forward as well. You can't sit there with your head in your hands. Right. Um, and that, that happened when my brother died. Jeff died uh, when he was only uh, 50, no, he was 47. And it was just at the time when we brought him into America. And he, he would have had a, a big role in production. He, he, he ran the factory. I did the rest of the, but he ran the factory and that, that's what he, he loved doing. But when, uh, when we did uh, break into America, we needed to increase production. We couldn't do it in our factory. Our factory was too small. Uh, so I had a friend at Barter, um, Barter, probably the biggest shoemakers in, in the world, right? They had a factory down in London and uh, they would, they would uh, make some shoes for us, take up the, uh, the, the volumes which meant a lot of work in taking our styles and all our uh, patterns and things down to them and getting them to run to the patterns. But unfortunately, that's what Jeff should have been doing. It ended up that uh, I had to do it in the end. Well, it didn't really get done that well. <laughs> and that is another story because, you know, we, uh, my, my desire was to get into America. The, the, the running business, the athletics business in the UK, were, and, in, and in fact, the Commonwealth, because surprisingly enough, we, we had contacts all over the world, but through the Commonwealth. And that came, to, came because of 
our runners read Athletics Weekly, which was some, a magazine produced in the UK. And so whether you're in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, even in India, the Athletics Weekly was quite a, a Bible for people. And our advertising got us a business. So we were doing business um, around the world, and I've lost the thread where it was going on that one. Um, but, yes, yeah, so Jeff was due to go down to Barter to uh, take the patterns, and, and he didn't. Um, and I had, a, I had to take a young man out of Barter and try and teach him what to do. Mm. But uh, as, as I, think, I think I was going, it was going to America that caused this, because I said the market in the UK was small. I went to America first time in 1968. And in 1968, NSGA show, Chicago. And I continued to go until 1979. Well, I went after the But in 1979, that's when I met Paul Feynman. Mm. But um, I needed to get into the market, and I needed to find a key. And the key happened to be Runner's World. Now, Runner's World in America, that really was the Bible. Everybody read this magazine. So if you were in the magazine, they would see your product. And uh, Bob Anderson, who ran the magazine, it was his publication, he, he used to rate shoes once a year. They had a, uh, a shoe edition. And uh, after a, a fairly difficult start, he eventually uh, went to a, fi a star rating for your shoes. At first, he started giving the one, two, three, four. But whoever became number one could never, ever produce enough shoes in that time. You, you put, suddenly the magazine comes out and everybody reads it and everybody wants you a shoe. It takes you six months to, to, to gear up to get a shoe for that sort of demand. So he changed that to being a star rating. Five stars were the best. So the key for me was to get a five-star rated shoe, which we did. When I used to design the Aztec uh, specifically to get a five-star rating, which was, that, that was the object of the, of the mission. <clears throat> it did get a five-star rating, but uh, 90, early 1979, before the star rating came out, I had the shoe. We'd had it at the Edmonton Games, the Commonwealth Games, done very well. We had it on exhibition at the NSGA, National Sporting Goods Show in Chicago, and uh, I had so many people who loved it. I also had a, uh, <clears throat> an offer of a... Uh, 25,000 pairs from Kmart. Kmart are probably one of the biggest of these wholesalers and, well, they're just, just big stores, Kmart in America. They wanted 25,000 pairs. Well, 25,000 pairs is about six months of work for our factory in, uh, in the UK. That's one of the reasons we needed to get, increase our production somewhere. Uh, and also Paul Feynman was there. And Paul Feynman, he loved the, the shoe, loved the idea. And he said, Joe, he said, I'd like to be the distributor in America. He said, but we need a five-star shoe. And I said, Paul, I think we have a five-star shoe. But we had to wait till August before the shoe edition came out. Uh, <laughs> and I phoned Paul that morning and said, Paul, go get a, a runner's wool from the, uh, from the kiosk and see, see how we did. Mm -hmm. And about an hour after I'd, uh, I'd phoned him, he came back and said, Joe, Joe, is it Aztec? We've got five stars. Brilliant. But we also had five stars for our other two shoes as well, the, uh, the spike and, and the racing shoe. Uh, but it was the, uh, the Inca 
and Midas. So we had Aztec, Inca, and Midas. We called it the Gold Range. And, uh, and that was it. That was the key. And obviously, the door was Paul Feynman. So that's how we broke into the American market. But if I want to go back to Barter, if Jeff had been able to go down there and take and spend some time with them, what happened probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. And that is they made 20,000 pairs, which they shipped over to Paul Feynman in America. And Paul is on the phone about a month later saying, Joe, these shoes are coming back. We have a problem. And the, the cushion, the midsole was collapsing. Oh, not everyone. They didn't all collapse. But we went to see Barter. And Barter was such a big shoe company. They had their own rubber factory. And in their rubber factory, they were making this new material, which we were using, not from them, but EVA, so which is a different material from just rubber. And they obviously hadn't cured it for long enough, so there was a batch that was failing. Fortunately, not all the shoes fell apart, but Paul Feynman ended up not paying for those shoes because they were so faulty. So we had 20,000 pairs of shoes, which probably helped him in a way because it kept him going until we could get production in, in South Korea. Because the one thing that uh, Kmart wanted, they wanted 20,000 purse, but they wanted them at a better price, much better price than we could produce. And uh, I took a trip to South Korea. I, I took a trip around the world, my first around, around the world trip at that point. And, I, and they were making good shoes. So they were, they were okay. But we had to wait till that came on board. And this 20,000 purse from Bata, although they were not the best, they at least uh, kept those orders going uh, until we could get South Korea moving. What an incredible story. <laughs> That's all I can say. What an incredible story. Like so much experience, so much has happened in, in the years leading up to Reebok being what it is today. And I'm curious, you got like all these other, you know, I guess shoe manufacturers, these brands that are popping up. What made Reebok different to the others? What made us different? Um, well, I, I think when you said there was a lot of people, in America, there were people popping up. We, uh, Runner's World, I think, helped Nike grow mm. because it, it helped the business or it helped the category of running grow tremendously quickly. And Nike grew with it. But also you had New Balance, Brooks, Ciccone, uh, Etonic, they were they were smaller companies, but they they were growing. Mm. Um, what else? Why would Reebok? Well, Reebok did get a five star. Well, that makes a difference. Um, I think also what what helped, and this was quite surprising when I when I went to uh, see Paul and we we talked about the shoe in America. Um, we had our logo at that time because we. We changed, well, we changed from Mercury to Reebok. That in itself is a different story. But with Reebok, uh, we had the Union Jack. Mm. With Reebok and then the Union Jack. At first, though, we, we had the, was the Starcrest. And it, it's still, if you've got a pair of um, classics, the Starcrest is on the tongue. Mm. And that was on the side of the shoe with Reebok and then the uh, Starcrest. And Paul said to me, Joey said, it's going to cost us millions to get people to recognize 
this as the uh, as, as our logo. Can we use the Union Jack? And I said, why, Paul? He said, everybody in America knows the Union Jack, which surprised me. <laughs> everybody in America would know the Union Jack, but uh, it seemed they did. And it was, it was a fantastic point of sale because we started putting the Union Jack on the side and uh, we also, that's on, on each shoe, so the Union Jack on each shoe and at the box. And the box was fantastic because the lid was just a Union Jack. So we had the shoes of the Union Jack. And the, now at that time, it was early days in America. We didn't have any point of sale material. We didn't have any posters or whatever, or even stands to put your shoes on. So what the, uh, what the retailers did, and I'm pretty sure that they were sort of uh, given the idea, maybe one started, but I'm sure our, our reps passed it on. But they would, put the, they would put the shoe boxes on the side so that the Union Jack faced outwards, and they would make a pyramid of these boxes. And then they put shoes on top of the boxes to display them. And that was sensational. It did, everybody loved that. It was sort of a, an organic way of, of point of sale. So, and when you say, well, what was the difference? Why did it happen? There are all these little bits and pieces that make these things happen. A five-star shoe, the Union Jack, the use of it in, as a point of sale. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and then I, I guess we were not that much better than anybody else until uh, a guy called uh, Arnold Martinez. I don't know if you've heard of Arnold. Arnold Martinez, he was a tech rep down in Los Angeles. And he's been in Los Angeles. His wife, Frankie, she was going to these aerobic classes mm. with her girlfriends, and they were loving it. And Arnold said, oh, what, what's so special about this? And she said, well, it's, we're exercising to music, but it's... You know, it's popular music, it's the dance music, where the exercise is music. <clears throat> so Arnold said, well, I'm going to come along and have a look. Like, what are you doing? And it's mainly women, if not all women at that time. It was a woman's thing. But he went along there. And the instructors were in a pair of running shoes. They, half the class are either in running shoes or plimsolls. The others are barefoot. No shoes at all. <clears throat> For him, that was a light bulb moment. He, he saw, why don't, why don't we produce a shoe, a glove-like shoe, just like that glove, because for the women, nice and cushioned, so that they, uh, they can do the aerobics. I don't suppose he really thought that it would catch on the way it did, but uh, he went to Paul Feynman and said, Paul, why don't we make a shoe for these, uh, this new aerobics uh, category that's happening down in L.A.? And, of course, it's new, and Paul said, now, look, we've got a good business. This running business is keeping us real. We're really doing well with it. Um, why, you know, why, why do you want to play around with something that a few girls are dancing about in down in uh, Los Angeles? Uh, however, uh, Arnold went round his back and went to the production people and had a word with production, and they made him 200 pairs. Mm. And uh, he gave them away to the uh, instructors and some of the girls down there in L.A., and they just loved them. Okay, they'd used glove leather, which wasn't the ideal at all. It, it burst away in no time. You can rip, good, just like paper, you can tear glove leather. It, 
it was cured. We, we did get a, a better leather slightly down the road. But if that had have happened in the UK, we would have been out of business. But the girls in Los Angeles, no, 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 they didn't care. They, they'd go up buy another pair because they loved them so much. And that, <clears throat> that just slow progress at first, but once it caught fire, it went global. Global, I mean, the company went from $9 million revenues to 30 million, to 90 million, to 300 million, to 900 million in successive years. So, uh, yeah, and this, this really, whilst we had a nice business with running and it expanded into other things like tennis, the aerobic scene really exploded the, the company. And it, it not only did it um, grow that fast, it went street. It had to do that volume. Everybody, the girls just wanted to wear the shoe, whether they were doing aerobics or not. And so at that point, Reebok became known really as a woman's shoe company. We, we were making a special sports shoe for women, just for women. Adidas, Nike, they were male. They were sweaty. All of a sudden, Reebok is this beautiful woman's company. So you've you got to add all these things together to say why. And it's a lot of things. I love the, um, the progression because sometimes that's all it takes. It takes one idea, one person even, and then all of a sudden it just can, can explode. And you don't even know when it's going to, but it, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I just love this story, man. Like it, it is such a, a profound story, especially with a brand that I love today and have loved for quite some years. Um, and not like, I'm going to be honest with you, Joe, I didn't even know that it was designed specifically for women. Um, that's just being honest. And I don't know how I feel about that now, <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> um, but tr truthfully, you know, like I think what you've, you've done with the company is very admirable. Um, and two more questions for you, Joe, if you don't mind, cause I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, one oh, of them. Why, why did you decide to leave the company after such a long time? <clears throat> well, I mean, it, I think you just put it in words then, after such a long time. <laughs> a long time. And, and it was a very exciting ride. It was a very exciting time. We grew, we did all sorts of things and travel, um, met Oh, oh, I, I end up meeting a lot of stars from Hollywood. We, we had the tennis tournament in uh, Monte Carlo, where even Frank Sinatra came along to that. Yeah, we had everyone. Uh, it, it's hard to make a list, but you know, you've got Sigourney Weaver that you mentioned. Uh, um, we had uh, Sybil Shepherd. Yeah, we had Jane Seymour, Roger Moore, uh, Sean Connery. Yeah, you, you name them. <clears throat> they were all attending Reebok events. They were all participating. And then you, you get to the point and you say, well, after that long journey, after the excitement and that um, the camaraderie, the, uh, the passion that goes in a company, you can't do it with two people or five people. It takes thousands of people. It then begins to have lawyers, accountants, and you become a numbers company. Mm. And when you become a numbers company, it's better to be outside than inside. Yeah. And for me, we got to that point where I can still enjoy the company because my memory 
is, is what it is. And I, <clears throat> I got to the point where I was taking a flight maybe two or three times a month, going around the world, going visiting people. I would, I would, I, I, I did business class. I, I've only done first class on a few occasions, but <clears throat> you would arrive, you know, picked up by a limousine, driven to the best hotels. <clears throat> you would sit down with all the people. You would have meals. You would discuss one or two things, and then you're back on a plane again. And you know, the the excitement, the sitting down, two or three of you around a table saying, "What are we going to do next? What's happening here? What's going on?" I heard with, you know, work, working sort of off the seat of your pants sometimes because you have to. Yeah, everything becomes very much paperwork, numbers. Where's the excitement? Mm-hmm. Can't, can't lose the um, the passion a little bit when, that's right. when you bring numbers into it. That's that's really sad. But um, what have you been doing in the meantime? I don't think it's sad. I think it's progression. I think you know if you're going to reach or achieve something, you will definitely start to find that it's travelled on, and you are not willing to take that particular route. Mm. What you say? What, what am I? What have you Since been that, doing? What have you been doing after leaving the company? Well, after leaving the company, the first thing I wanted to do was put my feet up for a while. So I spent some time in Tenerife, which is a very nice place, but uh, it's, it's it's an island. So you, after a while, you do get rock happy. You think, mm, what, what am I doing on the island? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I I did get divorced from my first wife. Uh, we we'd lost contact. We'd lost whatever. It took some time, but uh, I, I remarried, and we just traveled. My first wife didn't like traveling, and, I, and that, that in itself was sad because I had so many experiences, visited so many places. You know, I, I went into the palace in Monte Carlo and met Prince Rainier, and we had a glass of champagne. I met, you know, when you're doing that, you, you'd like to do I'd like to do it with somebody. Yeah. So that you, you've got that to share for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just traveled, traveled around Europe. I've got so many friends in Europe. I mean, I, I would probably travel to Australia, but it's such a long way. It's not, not something you can just, just jump into the car. Whereas yesterday we were, we were in England, we jumped into the car in north of England, uh, and by, by evening we were down here in the middle of France. It's something you can do. Um, I was talking about Italy, where we can just drive to Italy and meet our friend Umberto, Umberto Colombo, and drive up to the top of Sacramonte and just sit there in a nice hotel up there called the Burican. So, you know, I'd been, I'd been traveling a lot, but not in, I wouldn't say not enjoying it, I enjoyed it, but not taking in the surroundings. You know, what is it about when you travel to places, if you just do something and then go, you're not really seeing anything. Well, for the last 30 years, I've been seeing things, visiting people and, and enjoying life. I'm a little bit jealous of the fact that you're in Europe at the moment. You get to just travel, like get in a car and it's like so close, whereas I'm not yes. a, a short hop, skip and a, and a jump. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it would be, but COVID-19 COVID is uh, keeping that well, uh, well done. We can't travel as much. Uh, at this moment, but we'll be back again. Give us another six months, and I'm sure this will uh, we'll have a vaccine and we'll be back into traveling. I can't wait to travel, honestly, Joe. Like it's it's on my list of of things to actually do, and especially going to Europe, uh, Italy. I'm a huge history nerd, so I love 
going to all those places. I want to go to Germany, which is where my family's from. Um, all these, all these amazing countries, so much to do, so much to see. And yet COVID, and I'm missing out yet. Very soon. However, I would say about COVID, what it is doing is it's, uh, uh, it's pushing your business along rapidly. Oh, because now, now we need Zoom. We need all this. This is this is the meetings of the future, and oh, with our out. And uh, I, I've had a few of these. We, we had an avatar one. We were all sitting around as different uh, uh, images. Yeah, my image was about thirty years younger, or whatever. But <laughs> that was an interesting one. The the avatar one. So where where this is going? I mean, eventually, we'll be doing this in three D. Mm. You know, it would be three-dimensional. It would be incredible. It would be in each other's rooms. So, yes, COVID has pushed this along rapidly and is probably taking your business, maybe it would have taken your business 10 years to get where it's now, but uh, it's it's going. And that's the future. 100%. COVID for me has been a, a big blessing in disguise. Never would have yeah. thought I'd be even here speaking to you today, but alas, here I am. Um which is amazing. Honestly, I've really enjoyed this conversation hearing your story, Joe. My, my final question for you is, this is my legacy question that I ask everyone at the end. So you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done and ask me how in the world they got it. We'll just call it magic. But they've got it. They put, us, put something together and they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say in the show about your life? Well, I, I guess it, uh, the, the wonderful thing is that you, you, you find the name. And I think it's all to do with the luck you've had. I think you, you remember your luck, you don't remember too much the bad times. So I've had so much luck that my legacy would be all the moments of good luck. The fact that uh, I found the name Reebok in a dictionary that I'd won when I was eight years old during the war. And it was American Dictionary. So you know, that's a piece of luck. I'd, I'd like the, to, to see Aztec. We, we, we produce Aztec. Aztec was a key, a fantastic key to you know, being there. So you know, for me, those are the legacies. And then, of course, we became the number one sports brand in the middle of, in sort of late 80s. We were the number one sports brand in the world. We'd overtaken Nike and Adidas. So I think... That's the legacy. That's the, yeah, I can look back on it. And it, as I say, when you're doing it, you don't recognize it. You're taking steps slowly. You don't see it. But like you say, if you reach 100, there's a lot of richness and a lot of value when you're looking back. And, and you think, well, you wouldn't change those. You couldn't change those. But how lucky, how lucky have I been to have had those, to have been able to do it and to meet all those people. So, yes, the legacy my memory is a fantastic legacy as far as I'm concerned for me. And I get to um, keep a part of it during this interview and keep it for forever. <laughs> so Joe Costa, thank you so much, sir, for your time, generosity, everything that you've done in the world, even before I was born. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your story on the Storybox podcast today. It's been a pleasure, Jay. 
I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.